Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. The Orpheum Theater Group presents the new On Stage at the Halloran Center season, which kicks off this August. Experience a diverse array of live entertainment with music, magic, and more, including the return of the popular orchestra Unplugged and Songwriter Series events. For more information and to view the full lineup, visit orpheum-memphis.com slash onstage. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum, the Memphis Metropolis host. And this week, my guest is Marvin Stockwell, who is has a lot of different hats. I'll, I'll introduce him for a minute and then ask him to introduce himself. So welcome, Marvin. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So Marvin, I know, you know, you're today we're really going to be talking about, um, some work that we're both interested in around champions, the idea of championing, mm-hmm. championing and the cause. Uh, but, yeah. championing the cause. But, um, you, you know, you've got a podcast, you've got a book, we'll talk about that. But I think, you know, you've just had a very interesting, of course, we don't know each other well, but we've met, I just didn't seem that like, a, like you've done medical PR and then, mm-hmm. but you're also are a musician and yep. an advocate. And so give us your elevator, yeah. give us, give me your elevator speech. Sure. So I've, I've been a PR guy for 18, 19 years. Uh, I was at, I was at church health for, for many, many years. Uh, and then I was at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital uh, until about a year ago when I got uh, laid off as, a, as an effect of the, the pandemic. Um, and I've been standing up a, a, a solo uh, PR firm uh, since, you know, I didn't think I was doing that at first. Uh, I, I just started bringing on some clients uh, while I continued to, to look for a job. But uh, once I brought on enough clients, I just, I figured I, I really love the variety and I love the ability to work quite frankly, at the smaller end of the nonprofit uh, and advocacy spectrum. Uh, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with large matrixed organizations. Uh, St. Jude does incredible work, uh, as I now know, uh, uh, better than most people having uh, worked for the hospital for almost four years uh, and, and you know, helped navigate the St. Jude science brand through the pandemic, as, as, as crazy as, as all of that was. So I have a deep, deep appreciation of what you can do uh, at the large end of the nonprofit spectrum, but my heart and my passion is really at the smaller end, the grassroots end. As as evidence, I you know as you know co-founding two uh, grassroots nonprofits myself over the last seven years, uh, advocating first for the saving uh, and now for the reopening of the Mid South Coliseum, and then another nonprofit that advocated for a fair and equitable uh, uh, use of the fairgrounds, which is now Liberty Park. And you worked for the Church Health Center for many mm-hmm. years, did you not? I, I did. I guess that sort of falls in the medium in the medium uh, in the medium category. Yeah, yeah. So I've worked at small, medium, and the large end of the nonprofit spectrum, and 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 that informs. Like, so I also teach a publicity class through Momentum Nonprofit Partners periodically, and I've started teaching it uh, in other uh, places. And I, I enjoy teaching publicity. And having worked at all of the different size configurations of nonprofit, I, I kind of know the entire toolkit 
Um, I didn't really know know it. Uh, um, working at St. Jude really helped me learn uh, the parts of it that I didn't have to learn uh, prior to that. Uh, I didn't have to, you know, uh, uh, regularly uh, earn coverage in the in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times. Or, uh, but the expectation at St. Jude was to earn national top tier placement. So I, I learned how to clear that bar. So I I invited you to come on Memphis Metropolis because um, you've got a podcast called Champions of the Lost Causes. And, and I think that's probably self-explanatory, although I hope you'll elaborate on it. You're also writing sure. a book on, on champions. And I'm interested in that, too, and actually have mm-hmm. c- reflected on it in a couple recent shows. Because Memphis Metropolis really is focused on the built environment. And, you know, champions are have been so important, especially in terms of historic preservation, but not exclusively. Sure. Champions have played an incredible role in pushing projects redevelop. So anyway, I'm also interested yeah. in the notion of champions and the dis- and the difference uh, they can make. So I thought this would be a great discussion, but I wanted to sure. start out by just asking you, um, how did you get interested in you know the idea of champions to the extent you wanted to build a media empire around it? <laughs> media <laughs> empire. Well, you're, you're kind. Uh, it's, a, it's a very tiny empire right now, but no, the thing that got me interested in the concept of championing a cause was really my was curiosity as to what drove me. Like uh, I was <clears throat> in 2018, I I realized that it had been four years to the day that I ran into Mike McCarthy at a campus school fall fest event. Our kids, you know, we're watching our kids tr- trunk or treat. Uh, and I said, hey, Mike, how's it going? You know, filmmaker uh, uh, Mike McCarthy. A lot of people know Mike. Uh, and, uh, and I said, Mike, how's, how's it going? He said, well, did you read the news? I said, what, man? He had this terrible look on his face and he said, uh, well, they're going to bulldoze the, the Mid-South Coliseum. That's all. Oh, Mike, they'd never do that. Well, long story short, uh, I start to think, well, okay, I'm a PR guy. How can I be a good friend to Mike? And I goaded Mike into writing an op-ed. I'm like, Mike, I'll liaise with the commercial appeal for you. I'll get you an op-ed written and I'll act as your editor. Uh, Mike, turned me down flat initially and said, I need another another movement like I need a hole in the head. Of course, he'd been in, integral in the whole Save Liberty Land uh, effort as well. So I goaded him into it. He writes the op-ed. The op-ed blows up. Um, my uh, 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 Taylor Burger, restaurateur Taylor Burger and I uh, had met and we we put together an event called Fairgrounds Forum at, at Circuit Playhouse. And of course, being a PR guy, I invited all the media. <clears throat> well, they all showed up. Uh, it was a packed house, uh, and we won an early ceasefire, really, uh, with uh, with with then Housing and Community Development uh, Director Robert Lipscomb. Uh, the Tourism Development Zone law requires that you have the support of local government before you petition. Okay, Uh-oh. I'm ringing my bell. Uh-oh. I did. I have talked about, <laughs> um, but I just want to explain to people yeah. that. Um, the tourist development zone is um, a special zone that, um, not unlike a tax increment financing district, that captures increases, in this case, in sales taxes, right. and you can apply them to a project. And that's a big source of funding for the whole Fairgrounds Liberty Park area. Uh, there's that's a right. big geography. And sales, mm-hmm. so additional sales taxes are going to result from the development 
can go back into the project mm-hmm. itself. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to digress, but no, no, that's good. No, a TDZ, uh, the Tourism Development Zone. I, I, I rang the bell early uh, on, <laughs> on the, the wonky words. So <laughs> you did. That's so you're our um, new champion, as yeah. it were. <laughs> oh, I, I'm glad I broke the record. Um, but so Robert Lipscomb had. Um, when we had Fairgrounds Forum and we got um, uh, Reginald Milton and Mark Billingsley, both county commissioners uh, at the time, to take to the stage and express reservations about uh, Lipscomb's planned use of the tourism development zone, uh, that caused enough doubt uh, for them to pull it from the county commission's agenda. And it was then that that he realized, you know, I think, not that he ever told me this, but he had divided government back home, so he couldn't go petition Nashville uh, and then, you know, for the next year and change. And so four years in, uh, at, at that point in 2018, we're well into working very collaboratively with the city of Memphis, as we are today, uh, on finding third party investment for the Coliseum. But I, I kind of looked back on all that and I thought to myself, what gives me the fire in the gut to stay at this so long? Because I thought to myself, four years is a long time. You know, like what else takes four years? Well, a college degree takes four years. And I thought, well, if well, that's and you, true. And you've got a job, you've got a family, you've got other things. I mean, you're right. So in 2018, I was four years into working on issues around the Coliseum. The Coliseum Coalition had been um, a group for about four years. And I thought, what gives me the fire in the gut to stay after it this long? Why do I care so much? There's, there's no guarantee that we'll ever succeed. Uh, and even if we do succeed, I don't think it'll you know, accrue any benefit to me, uh, necessarily, monetarily anyway. So why do I care? Uh, and when I said, well, gosh, what I started thinking about the difference, the commonalities of how what we did was similar to a work group. And I thought, oh, you know, it's similar to a job, but yet there's, there was never any job posting. Uh, we all just kind of showed up and started working. And I thought, what would you call that job if it were a job? And I thought, well, you're really the CEO of the thing that everyone knows needs to be done, but no one's doing. I thought to myself, well, that's too long, first of all. And second of all, not everyone is the CEO, right? People have different roles. I said, gosh, what is the generic word for people who work on, on, on causes? And I thought, ah, people who champion the cause. And so I came up with the, with the, with the title Champions of the Lost Causes. Uh, and right after that, my, my very next thought was the lost causes aren't lost because we've found them. And that became my very first uh, blog post, you know, chapter entry, et cetera. And now 170,000 words later, um, I mean, it, the, the book has slowed. I think I have it largely written. I, I really just need to uh, batten down the hatches with my editor and wrestle the darn thing to the ground. But um, but that's how I got interested. And then the podcast became my way to interview people who had championed other causes so that I could kind of see it in relief. I could compare and contrast my own experience with the experience of, say, Todd Richardson, uh, standing up Crosstown Concourse, uh, Rashoon Austin, constantly working on affordable housing in Memphis, um, um, the, the advocates who uh, stopped the pipeline in, 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 from going through South Memphis. There are all sorts of ways to champion a cause. Uh, and I just got curious about all the different manifestations of it and got curious about 
why people do that. So that's what the book's about. And that's what the podcast is about. Essentially, why do people champion causes, what sustains them and what helps them succeed? Well, I want to talk in a few minutes about some specific examples, but I mean, what, I mean, what have you learned? I mean, I think the, a a passion for something, but sometimes you're just kind of, you're in a place and you realize that something needs to be done and you do it. So what have you, I mean, are there common themes or reasons that people become champions? What have you learned Mm -hmm. through your interviews and in your book? Sure. Well, I think, Causes usually separate into one of two types. Um, it's either a backs against the wall crisis where um, you must act or something bad is going to happen. And the classic example in Memphis is are the people who work to stop I-40 from bisecting over to park. Uh, I think I can look back on my own activism and, and many people uh, have said, you know, if you guys had, hadn't stood up, not sure the Coliseum would still be standing there. Uh we can, we can debate whether that's true or not. Um, but, and the second classification is really a crisis. It's, it's also a crisis in a way, but it's a crisis of opportunity. And, and, and a good example of that is Crosstown Concourse. You know, Todd Richardson had an idea. The people who helped him evolve that idea uh, uh, had a passion for it, but they realized the opportunity was just too good to pass up. Uh Ginger Spickler, she's uh, a friend of mine. She's the one who had the idea for Crosstown High, where both my daughters go to high school. Well, she saw a grant opportunity that says reinvent high school. Grant deadline is such and so. Uh, And she gathered a group of friends. I was among them. uh, And a group of us rallied around and built the the proposal for what Crosstown High became, the the business model, et cetera, did interviews, et cetera. So my point is, it's either a crisis of backs against the wall or it's a crisis of opportunity. Like this is this is an opportunity too good to pass up. I would I would argue that the Coliseum cause uh, is a bit of both. It is it was it was principally uh, a backs against the wall cause at the start. Uh, But now that I think the Coliseum is 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 largely saved, I would I would I think it's really the latter type. It's a it's a crisis of opportunity. It would be a tragedy if Memphis didn't find the civic will to reimagine the Coliseum, especially when it's tucked inside a, a development like Liberty Park with money already flowing to it. Well, you you um, you mentioned in the case of the Coliseum that Mike McCarthy um, roped you in, um, but <coughs> but beyond the op-ed, I mean, you you stuck with it for many years. So so in your for you yeah for you Marvin Stockwell, what was you're a champion for the Coliseum and what motivates you? I mean, is it both or is it, do you have a personal attachment to it or a community obligation? Somebody needs to do this. I'm going to step up. Yeah, I think it's a mix of all of that, really. Um, To me, the thing that got me off the block was, um, what was was the the oper- was the threat that it might actually be bulldozed and i thought that would have been a, a critical mistake that memphis couldn't undo you know like how, how many stories are there of beloved buildings that like 50 years later someone says well the people of that time didn't have the foresight to realize what they had um and so i just i realized that innately but what kept me moving forward is that i became part of a group uh, in the book i talk about how like 
a group of champions materializes out of the ether uh, in a kind of like alchemical way that I find almost magical in a way. Uh, And this has been borne out in countless stories on my podcast where, quote unquote, the called people uh, or or just just the people who care. Um, I I use the the analogy of it's kind of like the bat signal in the sky. And, you know, when when Batman sees the bat signal, he has to respond. And, And I just feel like, there's a legion of Batmen or Bat and Batwomen uh, out there, and we all care about Gotham, and I'm using air quotes here. And Gotham is just whatever we care about, right? For me, it's Memphis. Uh, and it's just like when that beacon hit the sky, it, it's almost like you arrive at the airport and you're already at the gate, bags packed and tickets in your hand and, and, and you, before you even realize you're taking a trip. And all of a sudden, you're like, who are these strangers? In my case, there were people that I knew Peripherally, I knew Roy Barnes. I knew Mike McCarthy well. I knew Chooch Pickard. Uh, I knew I knew Mark Jones, uh, but um, but I didn't know. I certainly didn't know them as well as I know those those folks now. And it, you know, being on a journey like that uh, bonds you together. It, it's kind of like not even realizing you're on a voyage until you're ten miles out to sea with no land in sight, and all of a sudden you're staring at your shipmates, realizing. What just happened? How did we get through all that? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to Marvin Stockwell, who has done a lot of things, but he's today we're talking about his podcast and book on champions of the lost causes. So, um, so if any, yeah, anyone's listening, if you're listening, if you're listening to Memphis Metropolis as a podcast, or if you're listening to on the radio, please pause and go to your podcast player. Uh, Cause if you're not listening to champions of the lost causes, you need to be also at the Thank end, you. at the end, um, Marvin, we'll talk about how people can, um, I think you have a, of an ebook um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. available and we can tell people how they can get it. And also I'll put that in sure. the show notes for the people who do listen to this as a podcast. So the, so I want to talk um, a little more. The Coliseum is a, is a great example. I want to talk a little more about, um, about some, some, you know, examples on my end and your end of champions as it relates to the built environment specifically. And you, you mentioned, um, you know, buildings that have been torn down and people thought, you know, what were they thinking? And the, and of course, to me, one of the classic examples of that is, is stacks, you know, they tore it down. Well, right. They tore it down. And then only a few short years later, completely reproduced it. And, um, and you know, because there, um, there wasn't a champion, and you for sure you could argue that in you know lower income neighborhoods, um, that you know a lot of these places get lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that's a great segue to me talking about um, a champion that I interviewed recently, and that person is um, mm-hmm. Steph- Stephanie Wade. I don't know if you know Stephanie, but she. Um, went through a, I think her day job is working for, you know, a, a consulting company, but she is, she went through the um, Urban Land Institute has an emerging developer program. And she went through that. She was thinking about projects and she got interested in this building at the corner of Vance and Danny Thomas that mm-hmm. has been just 
an interesting looking building and been, been boarded up for years. And it's a former Griggs Business College. And it's a very important structure with a, you know, an educational institution for African Americans. And she thought somebody needs to, and this is not important historically, or, but somebody needs to do something about that. And as it turns out, when she started looking into it, it was about to be torn down for a gas station because of course the corner of Vance and Danny Thomas, um, you know, probably, you know, a good location for a gas station if you're in that business. Mm -hmm. And she just kind of single-handedly, you know, scraped, advocated for it, scraped together some money, bought the building and is now going to, you know, redevelop it for its community purposes. She's still kind of planning that out. Mm-hmm. But, and of course, that's a very important area. Sure. I mean, it's in a redevelopment area, but also it's right there by the NAACP and the library. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, and but just, she just personally, I mean, it was really, it's kind of a one person thing. She's got help, but a one person thing. And to me, that's like the, on some level, that's the ultimate champion. Yeah, no. So, uh, I, A, I'm, I'm interested in her story and I probably should have her on my podcast. You now. should. Um, you know, I guess a solo effort is not impossible, uh, but uh, I've yet to encounter it on my podcast. Usually, now there may be a principal lead person, uh, but they, uh, but they always, uh, in most instances, I'll say, uh, it's it's some type of group effort. So um, I had my my, my uh, friend Isabel Gonzalez Whitaker on the podcast to talk about this uh, park that she uh, rehabilitated in Atlanta. Uh, and dedicated to the memory of her mom, who was the first uh, head of uh, the, the Latino chamber in Atlanta and did great things for really starting to really uh, make the voice of, of Latina, the Latinx community uh, in Atlanta uh, be heard. And so she did it for the mix of a lot of reasons. But I would I would say also, and she explores in her interview, how like it was her way of working through her grief, too, and her her incredible respect for her mom and her love for her mom. Uh, and I think, you know, we do all of these things out of a sense of love. We may do it because we think, well, why is it a tragedy that this building would be gone from the, the landscape, or, et cetera. But it's ultimately because we love the building and, and, and the community that was built there or, and or the, the community and the, and the role it might play uh, for our city in the, in the future. I think it's all motivated by concern for what might be. Uh, and, and, and I think for people who champion causes, I write about in the book, I talk about how in, in a way, you know, so take, I'll use an analogy here. If you stand with both of your feet together and somebody pushes you, you're much more likely to be tipped over and fall than if you have a broad stance. Your, your balance is better if you have a broad stance, right? So I think as champions, it's good to have one foot in the past. And when I say that, I mean respect for the gains of champions past. We don't want to squander their efforts. The best evidence, the best example of that is the civil rights movement, right? You want to talk about an Uber cause into which many causes are tucked. Um, But respect for the past, you have to have one foot in the past. Of course, we live in the future and we have concern for ourselves and for our contemporaries. 
we also have to have a foot in the future. We have to care about the, the needs of the distant other. I don't mean just our kids and their kids, but we need to care about the people who live uh, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now. Certainly any environmental champion uh, is motivated by that concern for the distant other. Just because those are people in potential who are going to live 1,000 years from now, in, in a way, uh, champions of, of a particular type find a way to have love and concern for those people. And if you do that, it really diversifies and broadens the value proposition of your effort because you're no longer just working for yourself. And um, I, I just think a very ego, ego driven way, and, and we all have an ego and it's important to value what the ego wants, but the ego is focused on the here and now and what can accrue to my benefit. And I think if you only uh, navigate your life through that, you're missing out on on some true richness. And I think that's the richness that people who champion causes have found. Well, I don't know if it's just, I, I, this is something I'm making a confession here. This is something I struggle a little bit with personally, mm-hmm. um, engaging in issues that are focused on the future. And I don't think it's it's so much that I'm looking for causes that would benefit me. It's more that those causes seem abstract to me. Mm-hmm. And um, like a, a good example is um, climate change. Mm-hmm. And I mean, climate change obviously is very important. I feel like I do my part, um, mm-hmm. you know, I've recycled and try to pay attention to energy consumption, but I do not feel really engaged in that issue. And I mm-hmm. think it's because it does, it seems abstract and it seems even though the earth could be destroyed as a result mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to, um, and it's not because I don't want to recycle because it's inconvenient. It's not mm-hmm. about the, it's just like I said, sometimes things in the, but I mm-hmm. don't disagree at, I'm not at all disagreeing with you. I'm just sure. saying that's a, um, I'm, I'm more a champion of the here and now. I hear you. And I mean, you know, you could look at, there's a, there's plenty of here and now about the Coliseum. Um, but, but I'm just saying like a hundred years from now, if, if we do our work now, a hundred years from now, someone will be very glad that we reopened the Coliseum. Uh, we take your own gratitude for Overton Park, right? Like we, we all look at Overton Park and I just had Tina Sullivan on my podcast. And, and like when you realize what Overton Park is about to dust off and, and, and really reoffer, uh, the, the, the golf course has been renovated, all this different stuff. They have some, some of their amenities are changing and being reintroduced. Um, but what an incredible package of assets for Memphis and had just some activists not stood up back in the day, uh, when I was a little kid, uh, we wouldn't be having those 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 things wouldn't be at our behest. We we would look at what we would have lost. Um, so I, I just think it's interesting to look back in time uh, at figures in history who did important work um, and uh, that benefit us now uh, and think. And maybe they didn't think about the people of the future, but I'm nonetheless glad, I guess. I I just, I think it's interesting to think about all that. Oh, of of course. And um, in terms of looking back, I mean, I'm very interested in historic preservation and, um, and, and, you know, champions are incredibly important, not only for saving the, you know, the most historic properties, 
like, you know, a Claiborne Temple, which was boarded up forever. And um, a couple of, you know, concerned and deep pocketed individuals decided that that was not going to be what we wanted for the community and, Mm -hmm. and stepped up. And, um, but there's, there's examples like that, but then there's also, um, another champion that I've had on my show is, is William Townsend. And he has, you know, acquired a number of old properties recently, the Lucian theater, um, the the Lowenstein mansion in the medical Mm -hmm. district, uh, a Masonic Lodge downtown, and those are all. Those are all. None of them are. I don't mind saying they're not on the net. Probably one or more of them are on the National Register of Historic Places, but they're not important historically. But all of them, I feel, would probably be vulnerable for sure. The Lucian Theater. Sure. Could have been torn down, and because there's not an obvious use for it. Same thing with the Masonic Lodge. Um, Mm -hmm. and he stepped up and said, you know what, we can't, these are important old buildings. They can be redeveloped. Someone Mm -hmm. needs to do something. And, um, and, you know, and he acquired all of them and it's, it's, um, you know, I just, and I certainly in terms of the, but for, um, Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. in sub, several of those cases. Mm-hmm. I think those buildings ultimately would have been torn down to the detriment sure. of the community. Right. Take the Chiska Hotel is another good example. Great example. And so, so I think um, you know you've got you've got moneyed champions, and 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 they're 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 incredibly important, right? They 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 bring to bear you know like Bill, Billy Orgel and his vision to redevelop the Tennessee Brewery. Thank goodness. He stepped in, right? So I think there's uh, there are definitely like the moneyed champions. Uh, then they're kind of your your grassroots champions, if you will. Um, if if the Coliseum Coalition has done one thing, it's kind of like hopefully won a ceasefire long enough for all of Memphis to rally around and assert its civic will um, to work through whatever um, political roadblocks stand in the way of the Coliseum being redeveloped, such that. Uh, these 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 developers with with uh, the money to do so uh, will come forward. I quite frankly think that we're uh, the context has changed around the Coliseum with Liberty Parks development, uh, such that I think we're operating from a new strength. Uh, I have I went to the I went to the groundbreaking of Liberty Park and, and shook uh, Mayor Strickland's hand and told him this to his face. I said. Uh, you know, have you had you not asked your told your team get me a plan for the for the TDZ and 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 uh, and, and marched on it and got that done? Uh, that was an important role that the city played uh, in doing that. They've been a great partner with us. I mean, we haven't been able to give we would not have been able to give north of 120 VIP tours for potential investors without the city's cooperation. We've done two civic cleanups of the Coliseum in collaboration with Clean Memphis. And the city of Memphis. So the city of Memphis has been a good partner uh, with us. And I think that's where the city and those of us in the grassroots are most aligned is that we both know that third party investment is going to be needed. I just think now the context is such that you don't you almost don't need us advocates asking what's going to happen to the Coliseum because it's coming. Everybody else is asking. The most recent story in the commercial appeal was spurred by a question at uh at the city's press conference around the Liberty Bowl, because like it's an obvious question, 
what's going to happen with the Coliseum? So it, it got asked by a journalist and that that spurred a Jason Munn stories that he pulled me in on. So I'm just saying like that question is going to be increasingly impossible to ignore. Uh, and I just think it's going to require investment. Uh, and I think the opportunity uh, is there. It's a it's two separate assessments have shown that the building is in excellent shape. Uh, countless public opinion polls have shown that the building is beloved. And now there's investment surrounding it. Uh, and it would cost between eight and ten million ten million dollars to demolish. So who in their right mind would demolish a building? Two separate assessments have shown is an excellent shape. Everybody loves and spend that much money to do it. I, I just don't I, I would my, I don't think anybody would do that. Well, and you you made an interesting point about champions is that, um, you know, they can take different forms. Um, you do have the, you know, you've got the, sometimes you've got the money champions, for example, the people that, you know, the money that was behind, you know, Crosstown Concourse and the money that was behind, um, we talked about Claiborne Temple, people that really want to see something done and, but don't want to be the face of the project or don't think it's appropriate. There's those, another person that falls in that category is um, the late George Cates, who, I I mean, under, you know, really undertook a lot Mm -hmm. of important Mm -hmm. projects, including, you know, the creation of the Overton Park Conservancy with others. And you've got those, but you've also got the, you know, yeah, the individual champions or the, I mean, Stephanie Wade, who I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. But, you know, another person Mm -hmm. you interviewed that I don't know, uh, that I think falls in that category is Aaron Schaefer. Um, Uh, So so talk a little, I I mean, I feel like when Mm -hmm. when his work several years ago, you know, gets a lot of publicity, but I don't think people, we haven't talked about him much lately. So what Mm -hmm. was his, I mean, that was a passion to make a difference personally. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. And Aaron's a good friend of mine and I have had him on my podcast. It's worth listening to. There was also a documentary made. uh, uh, I'm going to forget the name of the documentary, but there was a documentary that came out. Uh, oh, a few years ago, and the effort itself was is about happened about ten years ago, and the the the, the Toby Skate Park is like walking distance from my house because I live in Humes Heights. Um, but yeah, I mean, for Aaron, it was a crisis of opportunity. He was from California. He was a skateboarder and a surfer, and he couldn't believe that there wasn't a skate park in in, in Memphis that people could access a public skate park. Uh, and it just was one of those things where, you know, Memphis is at the end of about a 12 to 15 year run of acclimating to a lot of trends that hadn't quite come uh, to the Memphis area. The farmer's market movement, the local beer movement, you know, the, the, the bicycle lane movement, like a lot of those movement that's movements that have that have been that kind of worked their way through cities have landed in Memphis in the last in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, and I would also add to that litany uh, a penchant for adaptive reuse. Uh, we have gotten as a function of the, that our our growth has been uh, fast by I mean if you if you look at it it's been it's been fantastic. We've had great uh, growth, but of course it's been overshadowed by the by the speed of growth of, of a Nashville. But I would argue the speed of growth in Nashville has made them be reckless with their buildings in a way that we have not. Uh, and it's like the pace of change was just slow enough to where, uh, and we had people step up such that buildings that we legitimately were feared would be, would be lost. The Tennessee brewery being one of them, uh, 
the, the Chiska being another, the Claiborne Temple being another, uh, the 19th Century Club. So I, I feel like Memphis has gotten to where we have a penchant for for adaptive reuse, and, and I've I've seen this how it's 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 even kind of affected my own cause. So at the outset of us championing the cause of the Coliseum, we would say, yeah, we're the Coliseum Coalition. We think we should reopen the Coliseum. People would kind of like look at us. They'd look both ways, as if I hope no one's you know look look at watching me, and they'd say. I, you know, I've always loved the Coliseum. Is it okay to say that? Can I say that? <laughs> I love the Coliseum, and people felt it was countercultural at the time. Now, when we when, when we when we talk to groups or individuals or whatever, and we talk about the Coliseum, people immediately cut to the chase and they go, "Yeah, when is that reopening?" They assume it's going to reopen. So you, you've changed the narrative. <laughs> well, Memphis has, but we. But my point is, we we benefited. I think that's true, and you're kind to say that. But I do think it's also been that the wider Memphis narrative, I mean, we were at a low civic ebb of civic enthusiasm in 2006, uh, you know, as evidenced by, by the loss of Liberty Land, the loss of the uh, of the Zip and Pippin roller coaster. I really think if the Zip and Pippin lasted an, about another three years, <laughs> like the, the trend would have, that was like one of the last things we lost. Uh, you can look back and, and and see the reopening of the Overton Park shell as the Levitt shell as one of the really catalytic big first wins. Uh, and now to see it back to being the Overton Park shell is, is also equally gratifying. And hats off to the Levitt family who who for without them, you know, uh, I think the, I think the, I think the shell would have been lost. And that would have been a real tragedy given its its history. And it's just its unitive utility. Oh, know, so. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And but you talked about adaptive reuse, and also I feel like um, Champions has successfully used, um, and I'm going to use some jargon here, um, mm-hmm. you know, creative placemaking, um, mm-hmm. which is you know the temporary opening up of spaces to the public mm-hmm. so people can see the opportunity, and right. you know, using art and music, and you know, Champions have used. Like you, you mentioned the Tennessee Brewery. You know, I was on the board for of Memphis Heritage for many years. You know, which mm-hmm. is our local historic preservation organization. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there were multiple owners of the Tennessee Brewery um, mm-hmm. over that time. People wanted to redevelop it, and ultimately, I was convinced it was going to get torn down. Um, mm-hmm. I just did. It was just it defied any attempts to redevelop it. And, and, but, um, you know, some champions, you know, the late Tommy Patello sure. and others, um, Taylor, Taylor Berger said, let's just have some events here. Let's put, I remember, yeah. put some string lights up. Let's make some pallet furniture. Let's sell some beer. And that is why ultimately it got redeveloped. I think. Oh, I agree I haven't talked to Billy Orgel about it personally, but Mm -hmm. people came in and they were like, wow, this is really cool. Um, And, and that, that has happened on Broad Avenue and it's happened other places. So that's a tool. We haven't really talked about the 
tools that champions have used. Sure. But we did talk about events at the Coliseum for sure. But that's a tool because if you can reveal the potential of a place, people start seeing it in new ways. They think, you know what? We can't lose this. We need to do something with it. No, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, And like, so creative placemaking or pre-vitalizing, I guess in my mind, those two things are synonymous. Uh, and, And the Coliseum Coalition certainly employed those things, quite frankly, in the early going, uh, we were dismissed as a, a bunch of middle-aged white guys pining for Van Halen in their prime. <laughs> and wrestling. Uh, don't forget wrestling. <laughs> yeah, don't, but what we ha- what happened was, uh, so we formed in j- like January of 2015. Uh, and by May 23rd of 2015, we hosted the very first Roundhouse Revival. Uh, and we uh, thought, oh, we'll be lucky to get, oh, maybe we'll get 1,000, 1,500 people turn up. We had north of 4,500 people turn up, and they were of every persuasion and color and age uh, of, of Memphian uh, that really reflected our, our true diversity. And we had a great bill. You know, like we had uh, music, wrestling, and basketball. Uh, we had, we swapped out, we had two wrestling rings. And so the action never stopped. We'd be striking the set in one wrestling ring while another band was playing in the other and the other band would get set up. So it was like band after band, after band, after band. And then we, we headlined it with the main event and we got Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee to reunite their classic tag team. And they wrestled these bad guys from parts unknown. I don't know whether you've ever heard of them or not, but the Coliseum crushers, <laughs> these, these heels. And uh, well, I don't have, I probably don't have to tell you that, that that Bill and Jerry settled it in the ring and sent the Coliseum Crushers packing, and nothing <laughs> nothing brings to Memphis together like great music and and uh, and wrestling and basketball. But the fact that we got forty five hundred people to turn up, there was a guy who tried to talk me out of it. Who a guy had pulled me aside, and he'd said, "Marvin, you should think about your standing. This is a you, this is a." Uh, I don't want to see you get hurt. You don't want to throw away your, your, you're a, you're a rising, you know, uh, guy in the right circles. You don't know. You don't want to throw all that away for a lost cause. Do you? He literally said that to me. That same guy saw me that day at, uh, at roundhouse revival. And he said, Marvin, all of Memphis is here today. This is big. I had no idea people cared so much about this place. And I, and, I th- and, I, and I thought, and I've got goosebumps when he said it, and I'm kind of getting goosebumps thinking about it right now, because the point was, that's what put us on the map. It's what made people say, okay, this isn't just a, a small group of Midtown dudes who, who want classic rock. This is a mass, mass movement. And the very next month, the Urban Land Institute panel of, of ex-mayors uh, led by Tom Murphy from Pittsburgh sided with us. They did their own research. They had the National Charette Institute in to, 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 to get their own data. The city paid to bring in the, the Urban Land Institute and the National Charette Institute. Uh, and so, but a, a, literally a month later, uh, the ULI panel sided with us and said, we think the Coliseum should be preserved in some form, either reopened or, or, or repurposed. And the Coliseum, you know, uh, was A1 above the fold on the commercial appeal back when that type of placement still really mattered uh, saying, you know, watershed day in, in, in Memphis, you know, Coliseum shakeup. So that was the first, those two back to back events put people on notice that the Coliseum was not only beloved by many, uh, but also um, that a, a, an unbiased panel, 
you know, came in and said, yeah, it would be a shame to, to, to strike this. And as Tom Murphy was leaving the meeting, he had to catch a flight early and he just stopped over and, and, uh, and whispered in my ear. He, he said, keep fighting for that building and let me know if there's any way I can help you. And I just thought, I mean, that was water, that was wind in our sails, you know? Definitely. Well, um, you mentioned a minute ago, um, which reminded me that, um, you know, there's naysayers in any cause. And, you know, Memphis is a, is a, um, you know, it's a city where people don't always want to share the enthusiasm. Let's just be kind. You know, the, the people that say Memphis stinks, it didn't, you know, back in the day, Memphis was fine, but now it stinks and it always will. Um, and so you, you, for sure, you've encountered some naysayers in the work with the Coliseum. But as you're, um, has that come up in, um, you know, does it come up in the book or the podcast about, you know, whether naysayers are sort of a motivating factor or because I for sure have encountered some of them over the years uh, in my advocacy work. Oh, sure. Uh, I will say this, and this is related to the trend towards a penchant for adaptive reuse. Like, I, I feel like Memphis's optimism has gone from a low ebb in 05, 06 to pretty high now. I mean, it, it, at least it, on several issues. It doesn't mean our city's perfect. We, we got all sorts of problems. Uh, I'd be the first to admit. Um, but I'm just saying our confidence in possibilities is pretty high right now because we've had some incredible civic wins, you know, filling our civic sales. So I think to do, to the degree that that is true, um, uh, the chorus of naysayers has gotten quieter. Uh, I've had naysaying friends uh, uh, kind of reverse course, you know, uh, and so I, I think those voices are not as strong. I think the voices of tear it down and build new are completely archaic, uh, not to say that every building has to stay, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I think those voices are, are fading. If you look like, like in any Coliseum thread, but if the Coliseum's in the news, um, there are going to be plenty of people who didn't read the story who just want to sound off. And there's going to be a person who's like, tear the darn thing down, move on. Uh, and it's like, if you, if you, if you look at those people and you drill into their profile, most of them don't live in Memphis and they haven't been paying attention to the nuance and they haven't noticed how Memphis has changed. Um, so, but I would say that even those are increasingly infrequent. Uh, and when you counter with, okay, I, I feel that, but do you have a spare $10 million to demolish a building when there's plenty of space? Like you'd need a reason to demolish a building and you'd need, I think need to clear a higher bar considering that the building is in excellent shape. It's the first building conceived and built with racial integration in mind from the moment of its, of its conception. So it, it built in 1964, I think that's really important, especially in a city where Dr. King gave his life speaking up for the marginalized. So it's like not to mention the civil rights provenance of that in 1991, uh, the People's Convention was was held there uh, that, that surfaced Willie Harrington, who became Memphis's first black mayor. I think that's incredibly important. So let's set aside the fact that Lawler wrestled uh, Andy Kaufman there twice and that the Beatles played there and Sinatra played. All those figures played there. Beatles held their press conference there when John Lennon's comments that they were bigger than Jesus finally thought they have to hold a press conference to 
to address these concerns. That was at the Coliseum. I mean, you can't tell me there's not. You couldn't say you shouldn't save it just for the kind of like uh, tourism reasons. But you can't tell me you can't build in a Beatles exhibit like Beatles fans would want to go to the place where they had the the the, the press conference. <laughs> you can actually the first time I was ever in the uh, in in press room F or it's just called room F. Uh, Mike McCarthy likes to say uh, uh, press room F for fab four. Uh, but we, we went into that room and we figured out there, there's a mirror room on the other side, but you can figure out by distinguishing characteristics within the room, which one it is. And once we'd located that first room, Mike pulled up the Beatles press conference, uh, uh, on, on, on YouTube, on his phone. And we just stood there in the dark and watched the Beatles press conference in the Beatles press conference room. And it was really cool. And you just can't tell me that there aren't some Beatles fans who would love to have that experience. You could dress that up and that would be a nice smaller reason to reopen the Coliseum. But the, the main reason to reopen the Coliseum is it's, it's, it's got a ton of square footage and it's a very useful building. I'm not saying it has to be a venue again, but Memphis needs a midsize venue. Uh, I, I think that's a missing hole. Uh, that, that, that's a missing piece of our venue uh, offerings that, have, that has contributed to us becoming a second or third tier concert destination city. But Marvin, um, Marvin, you're getting yeah. into the weeds about the Coliseum. I sure am. I know. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. You're redirect me. Redirect me. That's fine. Sorry. I'm glad you. Um, I'm glad you're. You feel like civic optimism is increased because I don't always feel that way, but um, but I certainly hope you're right. So, um, Marvin, we already talked about your podcast, Champions of the Lost Causes, that everyone needs to subscribe to. But um, so tell people, I will put this in the podcast notes, but tell people where they can access your, your ebook. And then, and then also just a little bit about when the, I'm assuming a paper book is going to be coming out and when's that gonna, what's the timetable for that? Sure. So first off, uh, I, I currently have a free ebook at champions of the lost causes.org. And if you go there, the dialog box will pop up and all you have to do is put your email address in there and, and you'll receive a, a free mini book. And it's it's really a, a distillation. Uh, it's, it's called Dynamic Duo, Two Indispensable Leaders for Championing Any Cause. W- one of the things that I, that I tease apart uh, in the book and that I've kind of boiled down uh, to talk about in the mini book is there are two leader types. Uh, that I think are fairly indispensable in championing a cause. One I term the diplomat, and another I term the skeptic. Um, the diplomat is, uh, is is too trusting, he's, he's too optimistic, and the skeptic is not trusting enough. But they strike the difference uh, and keep each other accountable, and they watch each other's back. So I like to say, I use the analogy of depth perception. A left and right eye is what helps you see things with depth perception. Uh, but so in the same way, the diplomat and the skeptic are the like the left and right eye of a cause. The, the diplomat is more able to see people's aspirational motivations, whereas the skeptic is better at spotting their selfish motivations. So whereas the diplomat might be hoodwinked by, uh, by someone who's not trustworthy, the skeptic can sniff them out really early uh, and, and can safeguard the diplomat. So you see things with depth perception and a kind of stereophonic, uh, stereoscopic clarity, uh, and, and that you use that to evaluate information. 
uh, and evaluate individuals and their intent. So like, say the, the city early on when we were working with Robert Lipscomb had told us something. Now, I might, I, I as the diplomat of our, of our group, is prone to believe it because I, I, I tend to believe people and think people have the best of intent. Whereas a skeptic like Roy or Mike McCarthy are going to say, I don't, I don't trust this person. And they'll go and corroborate the fact by talking to a city council person or digging up a public record. So the facts that you establish are better uh, vetted, so to speak. So the diplomat helps the, helps the group of champions hold out hope that the promised you know, partnering is going to come. And the skeptic makes sure to watch your back and make sure you don't get taken advantage of. So the the uh, the, the dynamic duo free ebook really teases that apart. And it's really based on, largely on my own experience, but, but peripherally on the experience of the people I've had on my podcast. So, and that's, so you mm-hmm. need both, really. You do. You do. You need both temperaments. If you only had, if you only had diplomat energy, uh, the diplomat would float away on the rosy uh, rose colored glasses assumptions uh, and, and they, you'd never get anywhere. It's actually the, the, the righteous indignation of the skeptics who are the ones that get people off the block. I would argue that your, your, your quote unquote rabble rousers, uh, the people who really only have an appetite for the true fight of a cause. I want to make a sign and show up at city council. I want to call my elected official I want to lay down in the street. I want to ch- chain myself to something. And the world needs those types of activists. I've been in a band for 30 plus years with Ceylon Mooney. He's that type of peace activist and the world needs that type of peace activist. Uh, but my point is you also need diplomatic, like quote unquote, collared shirt guys like me who can tr- more easily traverse city hall that can have a relationship with, with people at the city and, and gain a trust there. It's, it's, it's really, you need all of those different types. And I would argue that, that the kind of rabble, the true rabble rousers, and I don't use that as a pejorative term at all, uh, but the rabble rousers are the ones with the white hot energy to get your cause launched and in orbit. But they usually don't have the, the, the patience to, to stick around. They, they, they want to figure out what's the next cause to go agitate. Well, well I, I agree. People, People, I mean, people in a, in a meeting with the city, people want you to show up and not that crazy Mike McCarthy. And I mean, I love, I love, I love Mike McCarthy. Don't get I me. do too, but I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, they, yes. Um, we were an interesting duo there at the outset. I mean, the, the crazy, I mean, we needed, we needed Mike McCarthy's white hot Captain Kirk beam down to the planet energy. Or, I mean, Mike is the one who took to the stage at Circuit Playhouse with his impassioned speech that got a standing ovation. Uh, he's the one that the night he did after he did that talk, he and my friend, our, our mutual friend, Jordan Daniels, the other co-founder, stayed up all night, like ba- banging out like a, a manifesto, really. And they produced this info kit. Two days later, Mike shows up at the at Mayor Wharton's State of the City speech, handing out these packets to city council people, to journalists, whatever, saying, this is what the Coliseum Coalition wants. You know, like we came up with the name, we created an info kit and Mike hit the ground at the at Mayor Wharton's State of the City. And you need that type of white hot energy coupled with a more like, a, 
I'm the more I'm the guy who balances a Mike McCarthy out. Right. You know, uh, the guy who's like, oh, well, the you know, the the the, the guy who's the, the PR guy for Churchill Center. Sure. I've known him. Sure. You know, so I, I'm more of a trying of like I don't want to say trustworthy because I think Mike's completely trustworthy. I would trust Mike with my life. But uh, oh, you I, know what I mean? Of course. Of course. More palatable. Yes, of course. OK, well, this has been fascinating. So we're out of time. But um, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Marvin Stockwell about champions of the lost causes, particularly places in Memphis that have benefited from champions and and what makes champions tick. So, Marvin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a great discussion. I'm Chip Washington. And it's still important to get the word out about COVID-19 vaccinations to those in our community hit hardest by COVID-19. The vaccines have proven to be safe and effective. I encourage all of you to do your research, talk to medical professionals that you trust, and do what's right for you and your family. So roll up your sleeves, get the vaccine, and shut down COVID-19. Go to vaccines.gov to find a location near you. Soy Talia Palacio, y todavía es importante compartir el mensaje sobre las vacunas del COVID-19 con todos en nuestra comunidad más afectados por la pandemia. Las vacunas han demostrado ser seguras y efectivas. Los animo a todos a que se informen, hablen con profesionales médicos en los que usted confíen y hagan lo que sea para ustedes mismos y sus familias. Así, póngase las pilas, vacúnense y protéjanse contra el COVID-19. Vaya a vaccines.gov para encontrar una ubicación cerca de usted. been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.